0: I was in a coma for six weeks while the doctors told my wife I was going to die. When I woke up, she told me the most fantastic story. My team kept running the business without me. Freelancers reached out to my team and said, we will do whatever it takes as long as Craig's in the hospital. I consider that the greatest accomplishment in my career. My name is Craig Andrews, and this is the Leaders and Legacies podcast where we talk to leaders creating an impact beyond themselves. At the end of today's interview, I'll tell you how you can be the next leader featured on this show. Today, I want to welcome Colin Sandberg. Colin has an interesting background. There's a lot of things that resonate with me, and uh, I've been looking forward to having him come on. Uh, I'm breaking a rule. I uh, quit inviting financial folks on the Leaders and Legacies podcast for a variety of reasons. But when I saw Colin, I was like, we need to have him on. And he has some amazing backgrounds. uh, And we're going to get into this. uh, But just some tease of what's about to come. He was the editor of the school newspaper in high school while he was failing English. And he got an MBA without having an undergraduate degree. So whatever we're about to learn about Colin, it's going to be packed with stories of being able to do things that most people would think are not common. And that's the thing I saw when I invited him to be on Layers and Legacies. Colin is a multi-business owner and founder of Thin Elevate. It's a MBA-led strategic accounting firm, which helps business owners use their numbers to make money rather than simply categorizing their expenses. As CEO and owner of manufacturing, distribution, and service businesses, he developed a passion for demystifying small business finance and supporting fellow entrepreneurs in achieving their dreams. Colin, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Craig. So, you know, just for those that are listening, um, I'm down in Austin, Texas. You're up in Fort Worth. So we're we're both dialing in from uh, Texas today. Always good to have uh, somebody else from Texas on the podcast.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But the, you know, the, the thing that really fascinated me about your story was, you know, you, you, you said you... So I was a horrible student in high school. I, you know, graduated with some pitiful... Uh, GPA that's why I went in the Marine Corps and mm-hmm. so um it, from what you're saying, you managed to do it, to potentially do even worse than I did and that's that took work
1: uh, so or lack of yeah <laughs> yeah so what what's the deal what happened? you know I so that's a great question um I I felt like as time went on in school, I got just more and more kind of actively disengaged. Um, it's kind of our like our worst nightmare for an employee, right? Is somebody who doesn't doesn't leave, but also isn't really there. You know, they're just kind of going through the motions and and not trying. And so um, that was basically me in high school. And then as I realized after probably my sophomore year how bad my grades were and that all four years counted, I was like, this is you know this is hopeless. So I was really in coast mode and. Um, found a couple of things I was interested in. I was always very serious about my jobs that I had, but man, when it came to school, I was, I was out. So, yeah. So how were you the editor of the school newspaper (laughs) when you're failing English? Yeah. So my, uh, the teacher of the, of the newspaper was very disappointed to find out, uh, late in my senior year when I was editor that I was in the bottom 10% of my class. And, you know, that was, uh meant I had failed a lot of classes, I'd done really, really poorly. And, you know, I I had a decent ACT score, um, you know, pretty good ACT score, actually, all things considered. But in general, when it came to classes, I just I couldn't, uh, I couldn't buy in, I would not do any of the work and then and then ace the test. And, and average out to, you know, uh, scrape by or fail. And so yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of wild. I always loved reading, always loved writing. But when it came to doing a worksheet, man, I was nowhere to be found. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, and here I guess here's one of the things I'm trying to figure out. You weren't motivated in school, but you wanted to be the editor of the school newspaper. What what was the interest? What, What drove that?
1: You know, that's a great question. I've wondered about that a lot. I think I've always just been driven toward leadership type. Roles and when I was in my job, my very first job, I was a shift leader. You know, uh, my my second job, I was a shift leader, one of only two who were you know in that role. And these were you know uh, practically minimum wage like fast food jobs. But I just always was, if someone was going to be in charge, I always kind of felt like I wanted to be that that person. And so with the newspaper, it was I enjoyed writing. And in my first year, I was given a a page that I was in charge of, and I excelled at that, and and basically felt like you know i think the experience a lot of us have had if if we're ambitious and we're looking around is you kind of look around and size everybody up and go like man there's there's not anybody here who is definitively better than me like i should have a shot at this and so you just go for it yeah
0: and you know one of the things i believe is obviously if you're in business communication is an essential skill it's not optional and writing is a form of communication what would you say to people, now, you obviously have a natural love for writing, but you you run into businesses all the time that you know some owners don't write. How would you advise them?
1: I, I think you're absolutely right that communication is one of the really one of the the pillars of you know leadership and just honestly being an effective uh, worker for the most part. I don't know of any real role where you don't need effective communication. And so, yeah, I mean, not everyone's cut out for writing. That's not maybe your love. Hey, you're if you're working today, you're in the best era of all time to get by without being much of a writer because you got chat GPT and all the other options that are out there. But, you know, hone your skills for communication. I, I think that was one of the things I did too late in my career was really get passionate about developing interpersonal uh, relationship skills on a, on a higher level. And communication is a huge part of that. So I think, you know, the more you can lean into that, the earlier, the better.
0: Well, and I think we both post to LinkedIn either daily or, or near daily. Yep. And I think that's, if nothing else, if you have a business, that's an opportunity to step up the bat and swing every day yep. and, and you get some sense of feedback on what's resonating and what's not.
1: Yeah. And that's actually been really fulfilling for me. I've only been doing that for a few months, but as I started, it was kind of a a chance to get back into writing, right? We all write emails and, you know, you just write little uh, short stuff, but it's kind of great to have a creative outlet. And, and again, you know, these aren't long form books we're writing. Uh, You're taking a simple topic and you're just expanding on it. And so I, I think it's a great opportunity to, you know, do that. And like you said, get that feedback loop, what's resonating, what's working and develop your own style. You know, I have a, a, my own style that is not grammatically perfect by any stretch, but it makes sense to me. And the hope is that it kind of resonates as a real, you know, real voice and not just, you know, something I I got AI to crank out for me.
0: You know, I've actually had a debate with two writers that work for me, we, we invested collectively probably three hours into whether or not to leave some uh, grammar errors in an email. And, and so eventually, it basically it was me saying, I think these grammar errors are important. And yeah. my two copywriters were like, no, nope, no, nope, we disagree. And I'm like, okay. And I told one, okay, rework it. And she came back a day later and said, Craig, you were right. I fixed the grammar error. It sounded cold
1: and stale. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I I fight grammarly. So I use grammarly for a lot of my communication, just you know, kind of oversight of over, you know, what I'm writing. But when it it changes things, like I'll I'll say, Hey, I'm game for this, and it and it doesn't want you to say that. It's like, no, you don't really say you're game for something. You know, you should say I'm eager. And I'm like, no, no, that doesn't sound like me. So I change it back and to your point. I think it comes across as more authentic. Comes across as a, a real person wrote this, flaws and all. And that's you know interestingly, we, we can all leverage machines and computers, but it makes us all yearn that much more for the actual human. And so when you let that human show through, I think that's actually very effective. Yeah.
0: Well, and as as an example that I think people could take comfort in, the you know Ernest Hemingway, certainly a celebrated writer. He won the Nobel prize for the old man in the sea. One it's written at a fifth grade level. It doesn't look like a PhD dissertation. Yep. Second, the last sentence of the opening paragraph is a run on sentence. (laughs) And so here's a piece of literature that got, you know, that was the reason he got the Nobel prize and he can't even make it out of the first paragraph without having a grammar error. Yep. And so that's, you know, and and that's the thing it's um, it does leave that human element. And, you know, I was I was actually but before we started recording this podcast, I was a guest on a podcast. And let me just say, if you want to improve your communication skills, get on as many podcasts as you can, Uh, because one, it just gives you a chance to say things in different ways and hear what resonates and what doesn't. But uh one of the things that we talked about was um people are leaning heavily on AI to do a lot of writing, and so i what I would say is the new noise level is AI generated copy yep and so if if you're using only AI, what that means is you're at the noise level, yep, and if you want to rise above the noise level, you have to add that human element that you're talking about, Colin, to your writing,
1: yeah. Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, we can see when something comes through to your point, it just feels cold and kind of stale. Right. And I love using AI as kind of a, I, I try to leverage it more for, you know, Hey, give me a draft that I can then tweak and fix and update. Um, and I think it's effective for that. But if you, if you allow it to put the finishing touches, I feel like that's apparent when you receive it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you,
0: um, so you graduate high school barely. And uh I think something else we have in common is we both had run in with the police but from from what I remember the difference is I could run faster than you and so I never got arrested but I'm not sure that was the outcome for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I uh I did unfortunately when I was 17 I got in trouble um and and you know got busted and that was a really That was a really uh, deep moment for me in my life and something that for a long, long time, I I didn't really want to ever talk about. But, you know, the reality is I was 17 years old. I was actually about three weeks past my 17th birthday. Made a big mistake here in Texas. That's an adult. And uh, and so, you know, I was in the back of the car and that really, you know, again, I think there was a, a period there that that was a kind of a major tipping point for me. And it really took hold when I was 20 or 21 with recognizing that like my life had veered far off of the course that I expected. I mean, you have to understand my dad had a PhD. My mom had a master's degree. I mean, my parents were highly educated. Uh, my brother ended up dropping out of high school. I barely graduated high school and I, I just kind of was looking at this, like w- what have I done here? You know, what is going on with my life? And so that um, really kind of put, you know, put the fear in me that, you know, this was a life that I could just continue on the path I was on and end up somewhere really horrible. And so that set the stage for me at 2021 to really say like, Hey, I have got this entrepreneurship idea that could kind of take a life by the horns and, and give me a shot to get back in the driver's seat headed where I want to go. You know, that had to be hard to come from family
0: with such high education and then to not be performing. I mean, that, what what, what did that, what'd that feel like? Would you, would you wrestle with and how'd you tackle that?
1: Yeah, it felt horrible. I mean, you know, now looking back, I realize it felt like for two or three years, you know, we talk about imposter syndrome where you're, you're trying to do something bigger and better than what you think you're qualified for. Maybe you've never done it before. I had whatever the opposite that, of that would be called. I mean, it just felt like I was living a, a, the wrong life. You know, I was headed down this path. I was always smart. I always enjoyed, like I said, I, if I would apply myself to something, whether it was a job or an interest, I was outstanding at it, but I, I didn't have the maturity. I probably should have gone to the Marines, uh, like you did. I didn't have the maturity to, to kind of, uh, do my chores if you will. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what I try to teach my kids. Like, Hey, you know life's on you live in the life you wants on the other side of get your chores done. and I don't just mean at home. it's just that's the attitude you have to have in life. And I didn't have that as a young person. I didn't really have the discipline to to do that. I would just get annoyed that something was quote, stupid and then I just wouldn't do it. Well, who's stupid in the end, right? <laughs> so you know that that really uh, once I clicked that into gear and like I said, entrepreneurship became that path where I said, man this is this is a chance where it's all merit from here forward. It doesn't matter what degree you have. It doesn't matter, you know, well, what you've accomplished so far in life. It's merit from here forward. If I can get that uh, to work, you know, I can get it all back. I can get on top. Yeah. Well, and you did something else. that's
0: pretty amazing. You, you managed to get an MBA without actually having an undergraduate degree. How'd you pull that off?
1: Yeah. So interesting story. So when I, when I graduated high school, barely, I literally high school came down to the last two weeks. I needed an art credit, believe it or not. And the craziest part was the, my old middle school art teacher had gone up to high school. And now I had this guy in like seventh grade and I've got him again in 12th grade. And he doesn't like me because <laughs> he realizes I've got the maturity I still had in seventh grade, basically. And so anyway, it ends up at the very end of the year and I come down and I barely get the the credit. I had to pass the final to get the art credit uh, to, to graduate high school, embarrassingly enough. And so um, I obviously coming out of that, I was not on a track to go away to a, a stellar college. And so I just went out, got a full time job, started trying to do community college on the side. That was kind of petering out. It took you know years to get uh, a little bit of progress. And I actually had started my entrepreneurial journey and was doing a job interview with a guy, and he happened to have a uh, he had gotten an associate's degree, and then was rolled in a in a an executive MBA program. And it like this thought clicked like there might be a path where. You know, and he didn't have a, a, an undergrad, he just had the associates. And so it kind of made me realize without a bachelor's degree, there might be a path here. And at that point, I think I wanted to kind of claim one for myself that, you know, hey, this is a reflection of who I really am, not, you know, the kid who barely graduated high school. And I was uh, 24, 25 at that time. And so I found a, a local school here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It was a top 20 executive MBA program in the country at the time. And I wore them out until they let me in. I basically said, look, you know, I've got life experience. I'm willing to take the GMAT, you know, put me up against anybody you've got. And I I guarantee you I'll do well. And they eventually gave me that shot. And apparently I was the last person more or less in the state of Texas, because after that, the state of Texas, uh, school system, I guess any public school basically, uh, outlawed letting anybody in who didn't have a bachelor's. So, but I made it through and, and, you know, finished near the top of my class and, uh and was you know right there elbow to elbow with kids who went to the Ivy League and you know have been and worked for Fortune five hundred companies and I'm right there with them, you know, in my late twenties, uh getting my MBA and and did well with it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's it's it's powerful and it talks about the the power of persistence. You know, and something you said there. Reminded me of a conversation I have with somebody on on Saturday. I met somebody for the first time Saturday. We're having breakfast as part of something uh, larger. And uh, he mentions that he was in the Navy. And and we start comparing notes. Turns out we were both at Subic Bay at the same exact time. Now, Subic Bay is a massive base. And so it's easy to be there and not meet somebody. But as we're talking he just naturally assumed I was a, a, uh, an officer and a pilot in the Marine Corps. I'm like, Oh no, I was enlisted. And so when you're telling your story about you're sitting next to these Ivy league students, you know, what are the assumptions they're making about you?
1: They're making it based on how you're showing up and appearing. Yep. Yep. And at that time I was, I was really insecure about what had happened to my youth. You know, now I've kind of, really in the last handful of years, just that, Hey, this is, this is who I am. This is my story. You know, this is how it worked. But at that time I didn't tell a soul that I didn't have a, you know, an undergrad that I didn't have a bachelor's degree. Uh, That to me was really kind of felt humiliating. Right. And so I brought that with me every day. I brought that energy of something to prove. And, and that's, you know, that's ultimately for me, like I've, I've got multiple businesses, I've done different things. What I love about entrepreneurship is exactly that story that I just told. I love that, you know, if you have intent, if you have, if you're intentional and you bring some intensity and purpose to what you're doing, there's not a limit to what's possible. There really isn't. And so that was, you know, that once that kind of clicked in me, that the attitude I'd taken toward, you know, the the things in life that I actually cared about up to that point and been really successful with, if I would just apply that to getting myself somewhere in life, I, I would be you know, great with the results. And so by the time I got in, in, in my executive MBA program, that was just how I operated through life. Wow. That's excellent.
0: Now I I'm guessing we have to go back in time. At at some point you joined the family business and uh, you described that as a financial house of cards.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when I was 2021, 20, I decided, you know, I had this, uh, really interesting moment where I realized I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It just came to me, like hit me like a thunderbolt. Um, I was actually reading an Inc. magazine article about a guy who had basically picked the shambles of his life up and made something amazing of himself through entrepreneurship. And it was like, wow, uh, this is, this is my path. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so uh, as I went to pursue that, I looked around and, and I had a family member who had a business, and I said, "Hey, I'm going to go here for a year or two. I'll help out. I'll see behind the curtain, and you know, I'll be out of there. I'll go do my own thing." And 22, 23 years later, I still own that company. uh, ran it for about 15 years as CEO. But when I first showed up, to your point, you know, the business—I I didn't know anything about business. I was, you know, 21 years old. Uh, I show up and everything seems fine. Business has been in business for five years. I assume, you know, it's got a, a, a dozen employees. I, I assume everything's great. Uh, one, about a year in, 15 months in, I start dealing with the financial side of the business. And it was even to the untrained eye, it was ugly. I realized this was not what business is supposed to look like. Yeah. And,
0: and you know, you touched on something there that I think really important. I think one of the one of the hallmarks or one of the traits that you find in any season leader is you always check assumptions because you have those moments early in your career where you, you made assumptions and you realized yep. how wrong they were. Yep. Uh, so what would be some examples where, you know, that that's changed you that where you would have pre- previously just made an assumption, you're now checking them.
1: You no, know, I love that. And to your point, you know, it's funny. We, we, <laughs> I'll give you, I'll take it one step further back. So, you know, when you look at from the outside, looking in, you look at small business and you assume like, man, these people know what they're doing. You know, all these entrepreneurs are just whip smart. They've got it all figured out. You get in and you realize like, man, everybody is kind of in this fake it till you make it mode. Right. Yeah. Uh, Because we're always trying to get to somewhere we haven't gone before. And by definition, you're having to go out in the, in the kind of land of the unknown. Right. And so that, that first assumption that everybody else has it figured out and I'm the one who's the the fake here, that's obviously nonsense. We know that then you, to your point, you get in, you say, Hey, you know, this person is successful because they either have stuff or they have what appears to be a big business. That's a, uh, an assumption you can't necessarily make. Sometimes it is a house of card and some houses of cards are small and some are really big. And so you know, just because you're seeing the outward signs of, you know, uh, money and success does not mean that inwardly it's it's right.
0: Yeah, and I I mean, earlier in my career, I worked at a couple of large international enterprise-sized companies. And there were clearly things that weren't fully thought out there. But, you know, going in a level even higher, I somewhat recently read Leia Koka's autobiography. And he talks about how he when he went into Chrysler, their finances was a house of cards that he yep. immediately had had to attend to. It was, you know, they had great engineering, but their financials were just a disaster.
1: Yep. Yeah. And, so- and that's that's scary how common that is, right? Especially it, especially in small businesses where you have a business run by somebody who's not financially competent. Maybe they just haven't invested the time or energy or gotten that person on the team. That's a really scary, but that's a really common thing. I mean, we don't see businesses that survive for any period of time that don't have sales. This is literally not possible, right? Unless you're just, I guess, bankrolling zero revenue, but you know, they figure out some a version of sales, and then they're not going to have anything to sell if they don't figure out some version of product and operations. But man, there are some really big skeletons in the finance closet. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing we could take from the from the uh, Chrysler
0: example, you know, obviously that was a company run by MBAs, run by seasoned business people, and if a company that size with that amount of talent. Can have financial issues sort of the you know the the mid-level companies that you and i run into on a regular basis should have no shame if they also have those issues now they need to address them but they shouldn't let shame keep them from taking action because much bigger companies with much more horsepower also have those issues
1: yeah well, and I think that's, you know, me not having a great pedigree coming into being a small business owner, uh, coming into working in small business, I think just got me right really early with being able to say like, Hey, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I'm, I'm good at these three things. And those two over there, I have no idea about them. I, I'm not even gonna pretend, right? Yeah. And so getting kind of ripping off that bandaid in business is so, is so important for the entrepreneur. And to your point, I think what happens is people kind of ignore the financial side of their business for a period of time and they get away with it for a little while. And then all of a sudden they're a, you know, two, three, $5 million business and they got a, a bunch of people on the team and they're like, man, they feel like they don't want to expose the fact that they don't really know what they're doing. They're still treating it, you know, like a basically living out of the checkbook and, and acting like, Hey, if we have money in the bank, we're doing okay. We must be doing something right. You know, you get that kind of thinking going and, you know, to your point, obviously Chrysler is an extreme example, but as you go up, the complexity is exponentially different. It is not just like an incremental change to go from running a half million dollar business to a $2 million business or a 2 million to a 10 million. It is an exponential change in the complexity of what you need to do financially to be, to be safe and, and take care of your business. Yeah.
0: Well, and something else you just said there about, you know, based on your background, the, you know, kind of layered into what you were saying was the power of asking the stupid question or the dumb question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you can go in and boldly ask questions that most people are afraid to ask. isn't that thought, isn't that the place, at least in my world, that's when I start seeing some of the biggest breakthrough opportunities.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everything obviously in, in sales, right. It's the willingness to ask questions that maybe other people would just skip over that unearths whether it's an objection, whether it's an opportunity. I mean, yeah, the, to me, the biggest opportunities, biggest sources of creativity come from, you know, being willing to kind of do the unexpected to ask seemingly dumb questions. And a lot of times the question is my favorite question is why not? Right. It's like we going back to your, your uh, statement about assumptions. I mean, we make these broad brushstroke assumptions that box off, you know, entire opportunities, realms of opportunity, because we just assume that it there's no other alternative, right? We get in that kind of group think. And so I love, I mean, to me, I wake up every day going, why Why would it not be possible? You know? Yeah. And I think that's, once you have that mindset and you don't let, let yourself get frustrated or beaten down to the point you stop asking that question, I mean, it's amazing what is possible. Yeah.
0: You know, there was something you said, switching gears a little bit that I just really love. You said simple accounting adds no value to the business.
1: Yep. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, again, I came up through the financial side of the business. I've done bookkeeping myself for my own companies. I've tried to solve that problem every which way. And I always came back to the same problem. There's a bookkeeping in and of itself. If done well, it's like a, it's like a well-organized library, right? The Dewey Decimal System's perfect. I can, I can find the right book uh, at any time. It doesn't mean that I have knowledge just because my library is organized, right? And okay. so it's very different to pull out a handful of the right books and study them and be knowledgeable about them. And so that's kind of, that's the way I like to look at financials is the organization is, is a foundation, but it, it doesn't in and of itself accomplish anything. And so what we try to do, and, and that's where, where really I founded FinElevate, I was doing this for my own businesses, being kind of the the CFO type guy. The problem is, you know you're only a, as good as knowing what to do at any given moment. And so what I started doing in my career was building a deep playbook of every different, you know financial option you could possibly have, every play within a business. And so once I built out that playbook, I just start stringing them together and saying, okay, if this, this and this is happening, here's what you do next. And essentially what I've built a uh, finality to do is deliver that for other companies. I mean, we can't help you by just better organizing the books. We've got to get in and say, you're not profitable. We're going to get to the bottom of, is that because labor is too high or because your pricing is too low? Those are two totally different scenarios. Both of them, you have to have a good strategy and a, and a foundation for, but you've got to figure out which one's which first. And so that's really where we dive in. I mean, that, that's a part of business that I always have loved and, and, uh, and love working with other entrepreneurs on.
0: And, you know, there's a concept. I have a buddy that has um, fractional CFO business as well. And, it, you know, it started off as more of a bookkeeping and CPA mm-hmm. firm. And, you know, I told him, I said, you, you never want to be a cost center. I think yeah. the worst place you could be in a business is a cost center. And, and so
1: for those without financial background, what's that? I mean, obviously you agree with that statement. What does it mean? Well, so I'll give you an example. How about this? So my first business, and this has continued to be a struggle. We're in the airport space. We do manufacturing of conveyor systems. So like when you claim your bag off at the airport, we make those. To your point, you know, the airline does not make more money because they've got a newer, shinier, better, faster conveyor. It is a, you know, yes or no proposition. It either delivered your bag, which is just means it's functioning or it didn't. Which means it's not functioning, and all, and it's a side note. But when somebody loses your bag, that's a person, that's not the conveyor. The conveyor is like it can only go in a straight line. It's only going from A to B. And if anything got from all the way from A to B, then your bag should have also. Um, and so when you know when we're talking to an airport about doing business on that, they're not excited about investing more money in their conveyor systems. So to your point, it's a cost center, meaning the airline does not derive profit from that. It is merely like save as much money as possible so that we have leftover that we can make profit on. They cannot make, there's no return on investment in that, in that environment. Right. Yeah. Um, And so to your point, you know, you don't, as a company in general, one of the the cornerstones of having a good business model is figure out how you're going to create return on investment for your, your customers or your clients, because that is how you ultimately, that's the best way to sell. That's the only really effective long-term way to be able to sell more business. And how's Fin Elevate do that for your customers? Yeah. So, to your point, you know, we're, we're taking a baseline of, we like to say, you know, we're, we're kind of a subset of the, the uh, fractional CFO realm. We're profitability consultants. We are helping, we're looking at a baseline of what kind of profit you were making before. And we're going to benchmark that against what the industry averages are. And most of the clients that come to us is because they're having a hard time breaking through. You know, maybe they're at 10%, but they really ought to be at 20 And they want to scale and that's part of it, but that's not, if if you're at any seven figure number and you're not at your benchmark profitability, there's something wrong fundamentally with the way your business is built. It's either your pricing is too low. uh, Again, your labor is too expensive. It could be some other cost structure. Sometimes it's an overhead cost structure, but we're going to dive in and help you figure that out and put companies on a path in a very short order. Within a quarter, we're putting companies on a path to get to typically double their profitability, and some of that's going to come from growth, but a lot of it is going to come from really getting to the heart of where your your business model is is off. Right.
0: Well, I I love that I love that. You know, I've I've worked with a number of CFOs at larger companies, and so many of them come up from the uh, from the controller ranks. They were a controller before they became a CFO. And seems like the only, you, know, you open up their war chest and the only thing they have in there is a battle ax that cuts cost. All they yep. know how to do is cut, 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 cut. Yep. And the thing I like about what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, maybe there's some places to cut, but you also need to look at growth and you need to look at optimizing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I look at the cost side as more of an allocation of resources, right? So it's not to say that the answer is always less, it could be that it's structured wrong. It could be that there's some changes. And really the the mindset that the CEO or the whoever's running the company needs to have around the way the financials work, right? Understanding which are variable costs that are gonna move up and down with revenue, which things are fixed. And we've gotta get low fixed costs one way or another. That may mean shifting some of your labor to a more variable pay plan, giving them bigger upside. But you've gotta have you know a lower base type of of uh, play. So yeah, I, I agree. And, and unfortunately, you know, in that in that controller, typical controller mindset, it's a lot about perfecting the financials. And to your point, you know, shaving down costs, that's always the answer. Well, yeah. but you can't ultimately win. That's not a long term strategy. You can't save your way into being a great company. You just can't. You have to have a dis- discipline around how you spend your money and allocate your resources 100%. But part of it has to be, you know, breaking out of the mold of wherever you've been stuck. You don't do that through, you know, chopping heads and, and, you know, shutting down offices. That's, that's not how you do that. Wow.
0: Colin, this has been some amazing insights that you've been sharing. I, I would love to go, you know, for another hour, but uh we need to wrap up. But I do think, I mean, I, I love what you have. I I think. Like I said, I broke my rule to have somebody in the financial space on leaders and legacies and, and you absolutely delivered. I think people should reach out to you. How do they reach you?
1: The easiest way, I mean, we talked about earlier is I'm on LinkedIn constantly. So the easiest way is, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn or look up my website, finelevate.com. I'm sure that'll be in the show notes. Um, those are the easiest ways, you know, we're, uh, I'm I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. So <laughs> I'm not that hard to find. Excellent.
0: All right. Well, thanks
1: again, Colin. Yeah, thanks, Craig. This is
0: Craig Andrews. I want to thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legacies podcast. We're looking for leaders to share how they're making impact beyond themselves. If that's you, please go to alliesforme.com/guest and sign up there. If you got something out of this interview, we would love you to share this episode on social media. Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone who would be a great guest, tag them on social media and let them know about the show, including the hashtag leaders and legacies. I love seeing your posts and suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content to make sure you don't miss anything please go ahead and subscribe your thumbs up ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to my team. If you want to know more, please go to alliesforme.com uh, or follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next
1: time.